The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Good afternoon. It is Wednesday, August 9. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Ed Chung, Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress, and I'll be your guest host for the day. Uh, it's a beautiful, sunny, low-humidity day here in Washington, D.C. Uh, anybody who lives in D.C. knows that humidity is really important, and this is rare for the beginning of August here, uh, right in the middle of summer. What isn't rare is that uh, we have crises happening in the Trump administration and because of the Trump administration, two things, just as if you are uh, just putting the blanket over your head and, and hiding in bed. Uh, yesterday, the quote unquote leader of one country brought us closer to the end of civilization by goading the quote unquote leader of another country into starting a nuclear war. and. One of them threatened the other with fire and fury, which sounds more like a Game of Thrones line than something a leader of a country should say. On the domestic front, we hear today that the FBI executed a search warrant on one of the homes of Paul Manafort, former campaign official for the Trump, Trump administration. Uh, I'm recalling my days as both a state and federal prosecutor, which means that the search warrant was signed by a judge or a magistrate who found that there was probable cause that the home either was a site of a, some kind of criminal activity or uh, contained evidence that uh, a crime had occurred at some time or some place. And so uh, we are tracking that. Um, I, I'm sure if you log on and, uh, to any kind of news site, uh, you'll see a lot of details on that. But other than that, the president's on vacation. Um, well, actually he's probably, he, he's teleworking from his golf resort in New Jersey and Congress is in recess. So. We're gonna take advantage of this opportunity to highlight a couple crucial issues that will come to the fore this fall. And these are actually issues that surprisingly, the president and establishment Republicans agree on and are united on, which for progressives and for the rest of the country is dangerous because there could be momentum and movement on these issues. Uh, in the second half of, a sh of the show, we're going to discuss how the Trump administration is trying to transform the federal judiciary um, by utilizing the power that the president has to nominate judges to the federal bench. And this is a huge priority for not only the Trump administration, but for uh, congressional Republicans as well. And the results are, are going to be long lasting and uh, potentially dangerous. The federal bench is where you hear cases on uh, voting rights, or we've seen this year the immigration ban, or LGBT rights, or a host of other types of issues. Uh, so nominating and confirming judges to the federal bench has a lasting impact on this country. So we'll talk about that in the second half of the show. We're going to start out with uh, something that affects each of us uh, every day. It's the U.S. economy and also how some of the policies uh, that the Trump administration and congressional Republicans are proposing uh, will affect the economy, such as 
tax policy. Now, I am in no way uh, qualified to talk about this, and that's why I'm uh, glad to be joined by my colleague here at the Center for American Progress, Mike Matowitz. He's an economist here. Mike, thanks for joining the Leslie Marshall Show. Pleasure to be here, man. And for those of you who are listening who would like to be part of the conversation, feel free to call in at one 888 6 That's one 888 You can also follow the show on Twitter at Leslie Marshall. And follow me as well if you'd like at Ed Chung Tweets. That's E-D-C-H-U-N-G Tweets. So, Mike, we've seen in recent uh, news uh, clippings when the president is not um, getting us into war that he's been bragging about the state of the U.S. economy. And he's talked about the fact that uh, the stock market is at the at all time high. Uh, there's been more jobs created in the first six months of this administration than any other. It's been the greatest uh job creation spree, um, and I'm, I'm probably making that up, but it seems like something that he would say. So where are we with jobs in America? What is kind of stepping back the big picture of the health of the U.S. economy? So the the big picture on jobs is actually, it still looks really positive. Um, you know, we have had, I believe, the longest streak of job growth on record at this point. Uh, you know, you have, it, the labor market moves pretty slowly. We've got a lot of momentum from the Obama years. Uh, I think so far this year we're doing right about as well as we were last year, maybe a little slower on the on total job creation. But, you know, one one thing that people like me really are paying attention to is, you know, when you have a recession and you sort of get out of the recession, like the first people who get rehired are like the guys who got laid off from their tech programming jobs. And, you know, like the further out you go in, in a recovery, the more equal the gains you start to get. So... You know, this is where we're starting to see people who usually get left behind really start to finally benefit. And so when we're looking at, let, let's take some of the individual things or indicators that the administration is trying to push out there. Mm -hmm. You talked about job growth. I think we were at, um, for the latest uh, Department of Labor numbers came at like 209, 210,000 jobs. I mean, is well that, remembered. Oh, <laughs> pay attention to some things that aren't uh, criminal justice related. Um, but is that... Um, is that significantly higher than any other job growth? Is that is is that consistent with what we've seen generally during this time in terms of seasonal workers and so forth, or is it out, is it an outlier? No, it's really like just about on trend with where we were last year. It's a little slower than we were in about you know 2012, 13, 14. You saw a lot more catch-up growth going on, and it's kind of leveled off a little since then, in part because you know the government has not been spending as much money as it normally spends, and so the economy is a little less tight than it normally would be. So we haven't seen like a you know a major change since the since things started slowing down late in the administration. And this is basically it's a, I guess a tiny bit slower now, but I mean it seems like we're just still sort of cruising on that. So in terms of the the stock market, the stock market is at you know continues to grow its new highs. What does that mean? <laughs> I, I take it by your by by the fact that you laughed a little bit there that um, it may not mean much. But what does it mean for the the health of the overall economy? And if it doesn't indicate that, what what does it portend for something else? Well, I just want to thank you for prepping me on that a little because, <laughs> like any good economist, I now know roughly what the stock market is at because I looked it up today. Um, usually, we don't look this stuff up because it doesn't really matter for most of what we're doing. You know, like I think it's. Basically, half of America has no stocks at all. Um, the vast majority of the stock market is owned by families that make half a million dollars or more a year. You know, I mean, the, 
they clearly make a lot of money. They do a lot of stuff. But, you know, if you're really paying attention to the macro economy, like, you know, where you're sort of saying, what, how is this creating jobs for people? How is this lifting wages? How are you getting, you know, people more opportunities? The stock market is really not your barometer. Um, you know, I think, like, the major development I'm aware of in the stock market in the last, like, you know, year or so is that, like, you can threaten nuclear war, and it does seem to produce some change in the stock market. It's not doesn't seem to be a plus. So, is there anything within the first, you know, six seven months here of the Trump administration that has affected where we are in the economy, or is the economy just one of these kind of huge lumbering, you know, machines that churns regardless of a lot of federal policy? So, I mean, part, the parts of the economy move really fast, but. You know, overall, especially the way most people are going to experience it, it it's a slow-moving ship, and that's you know, the other piece of this equation is you've got the Federal Reserve. So you know, this is kind of one of the the biggest things that people don't really talk about. But you know, the Federal Reserve sets interest rates. You know, does a lot of monitoring of banks. At least since we figured out that banks can collapse, we've like had them pay a little more attention to that. Um, but what is the what does the Federal Reserve um, pay attention to when it comes to federal government or, or administration policies? So the sort of the two major things they're looking at are, you know, what's the unemployment rate like and what is inflation looking like? So, you know, if you're, you're looking at inflation because you're trying to see if the economy is overheating in some way where things are growing too fast and, you know, people are starting to, like, bid up the prices of things because we're literally running out of them. Um, but, you know, those are sort of your, your two, like, baselines is, you know, how fast are jobs growing, uh, how fast are prices growing. And then they're, they're sort of the, like, big outlier of, like, well, what else should we be worried about? Like, you know, if there is going to be a nuclear war, like, that has implications for, you know, what policy should be. If you're going to do a really big tax cut, you also have to think really hard about what you're going to do if you're trying to keep the economy on a steady keel. So that brings us to uh, an issue that... The Trump administration and congressional Republicans have stated that they're going to push uh, when Congress comes back from their August recess. Uh, after the break, we're going to continue our conversation with Mike Madowitz, talk about tax policy and how that affects the economy, how that's going to affect what the Fed is thinking in terms of raising interest rates. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after this next question. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Ed Chung sitting in for Leslie today. I'm the Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. I'm joined here by my colleague, Mike Matowitz who's an economist here at CAP, and we're talking about the U.S. economy and also uh, the, the things that the administration are is prioritizing going into the fall. And Mike, we left it off uh, before the break talking about uh, the, the state of the economy, but also leading into what the Trump administration can do potentially to that will affect uh, the economy um, and actually potentially cause it to go in a direction that we don't want to go. So we know that they're, they've prioritized tax reform. Um, and and what, is, what is tax reform for this administration and for this Congress actually mean? Yeah, you always have to use the, the air quotes for tax reform, right. which is hard to do on radio. But um, 
you know, it's actually gotten like unusually, it's gotten more vague over time. You know, I think like every time they've put out a tax plan, it's gotten a little bit shorter and had a little bit less detail. Um, you know, the one sort of clear thing that seems to be coming through in all this is there is a, a house plan they're working off as a template. And that was like a long plan that was like 30 or 40 pages. Now we're down to like one page. But the same principle is basically there, which is like we're going to cut taxes a lot on corporations and cut taxes on rich people. And, you know, this is kind of something that, that Republicans have tried since about the 1980s or so. And they have this theory that it's going to, you know, make the economy grow a lot. Um, so, like, economists like me really like to test things like that because if you can make the economy grow a lot, that's a good thing. Uh, but that claim has never really held up particularly well. Uh, and it, held, it holds up particularly poorly at times like now when you have an economy that's been growing for a really long time. And one of the reasons it does that is you have the Federal Reserve looking for things that'll trip up the economy. And, one, and you know, so when they see one of these tax plans coming on and it's like, so here's the plan. We're going to cut taxes on these rich people by like trillions of dollars and then it's going to be fine. They're also largely economists and they're like, so we know that won't work. We're going to have to figure out a way to make sure we control the economy when you do this. So that's interesting because... What you talked about before was kind of the slow, steady growth that we've been experiencing, not only in job growth, but also in the overall health of the economy. I mean, since 2010, um, 2010, 2011, somewhere around there, we've basically been on a steady upward trajectory. Something like a tax plan that could really just revolutionize, and not in a good way, um, the the way that um, the federal government collects money and the way that Americans pay, What's going to be the thinking behind that for the Federal Reserve in terms of when and um, well, when um, to raise interest rates at that point, if they will? Yeah, so typically they're trying to, I think the, the, the closest thing economists get to speaking English is trying to use metaphors. So we typically say the Fed leans against the wind. And in this case, you would be injecting a lot of money into the economy. So think of this kind of like when we did the stimulus in the middle of the recession to like prop up the economy, but like without anybody out of work. And so the natural reaction if you're the Fed at that point is you're going to raise interest rates and try and slow down the jobs market uh, because, well, you're not trying to slow down the jobs market per se, but that's sort of a necessary side effect of trying to accommodate this huge shock in tax policy. So what will that mean for everyday Americans in terms of just you know, jobs or whatever it may be in turn um, that they'll be experiencing financially. Yeah, and this is sort of where you get to the the frustrating distributional parts of this, right? Is is you can do a tax cut that's just for rich people if you're gonna pretend the Fed's not gonna do anything, but the, we pretty much know what the Fed's gonna do. And so while these rich people are going to get a tax cut, you know, if you slow the economy down, it's not the rich people who take the big hit, right? It's it's the people who are going to get laid off who've just gotten jobs, who've finally gotten back on their feet and you know, I mean, in many cases, this is sort of, you know, I think like the last three years, you've seen most of the job gains have been people without uh, a college degree, right? You know, so in many cases, like heavy Trump supporters, right? Like these groups, these are people who are going to get, um, I'm looking for an artful term to say they're not going to do particularly well uh, in this trip and in in how this all shakes out. So going back to what we were talking about earlier about what tax reform means. I mean, I think there are people on both sides of the aisle and people across the ideal, ideological spectrum that are looking for tax reform, you know, writ large, if you will. For progressives, what would tax reform look like and, and what are the types of uh, policies that should be included if Congress were to consider this as a law? So, I mean, 
The thing that I'm always like struck by when we're talking about this is there's this constant, you know, we need fewer brackets so that we can simplify the tax code and tax, you know, the billionaires at the same rate as the people who make minimum wage, which, I mean, for a variety of reasons doesn't make sense. I think if you're a progressive and you're looking at this, you need to figure out ways to better target tax policy at the very richest people because, you know, we really have seen over the last generation a big shift in where the income growth goes and we haven't, our tax code has kind of moved in the opposite direction. So, you know, you kind of want to, you'd actually want to do more tax brackets and so you can do, I think, Schumer last year proposed the millionaire surcharge tax, you know, things like this that, you know, I'm sure millionaires was not an arbitrarily chosen word, but these things actually make a lot of sense when you look at what's happened to the income distribution in our country. And, and when we're looking at the viability of tax reform in the fall, um, part of the reason that it seemed like they pushed health care reform uh, the, so quickly in the, in, hap, in the haphazard manner that they did was because they wanted that to affect uh, the tax reform strategy in the fall. Just real quickly, could you just, now the health care reform has not passed, what does that mean for the prospects of, of tax reform in the fall? Yeah, this is one of the reasons each of the proposals has gotten a little more vague, is they were expecting to have a big cut in expenditures when they kicked a lot of people off Medicaid, and so they were going to say, well, we've saved all this money, now let us put all this money into big tax cuts for companies. And so now they're in this position of not having the money to do tax cuts for companies and trying to figure out how to still do the tax cut without any money which seems hard. That's the kind of good news that I think we could potentially leave this conversation on. It's always a nice when math is good news. <laughs> where can uh, where can people find you? Uh, social media or, or uh, elsewhere? Yeah, I, I'm on the Twitters at M. Matowitz, and um, you, know, you can look for more of our work at CAV. Great. Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to continue the show after the break where we're going to talk about another really important issue that's going to come uh, this fall. Uh, we're talking about judicial nominations. I know it doesn't sound sexy, but in terms of the importance of the issue for everyday Americans, it is one of the most important and most powerful tools that the federal government has and that the president has in his power. So we're going to be talking to two experts on this. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Back on the Leslie Marshall Show, this is Ed Chung. I'm the Vice President for Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. If you want to be part of the conversation, please call in at 1-888-6-LESLIE. That's 1-888-653-7543. You can follow the show at Leslie Marshall and also uh, follow me, if you will, Ed Chung Tweets, at Ed Chung Tweets. So one of the more uh, strategic and dangerous yet overlooked aspects of the Trump agenda is to reshape the federal judiciary by nominating judges that have, well, let's say a different perspective than not only progressive Americans, but I dare say mainstream Americans as well. And so with me to discuss the importance of the president's constitutional power to nominate federal judges to the bench are two experts. We have Lena Zwarenstein, Director of Strategic Engagement uh, at the American Constitution Society, and Daniel Goldberg, Legal Director for the Alliance for Justice. Thanks for, having, thanks for being here. 
Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ed. So the issue of nominating and confirming judges rarely gets national attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you will have... Uh, there was a lot of activity earlier this year with uh, the Supreme Court nomination and eventual confirmation of Neil Gorsuch, but it's not something that is on the forefront of the minds of most Americans. And why do you think that uh, people should care about these this issue, um, especially when we're talking about district court judges, mm -hmm. appellate court judges? Well, majority of the time that people have any interaction with the court system, it will be at that district court level. So the district courts here, hundreds of thousands, or at least get hundreds of thousands of filings every year. So any interaction people have with the courts, it's probably those district courts where um, that's where the, those courthouse doors are, are first opened by a majority of people. And they're the ones making the day-to-day -day decisions from everything from employment discrimination cases to environmental regulations and things of general public safety to reproductive rights and access to voting rights to um, the money in politics. And that is where so many decisions of the issues that we all care about so deeply um, sometimes are, are, are battled out. And I think it's really important that whoever it is that is on the bench is able to hear both sides of a case very fairly um, to be able to uh, have a temperament in order to, to sit on the bench and to be able to, to, again, hear everybody fairly. And that really makes the courts as accessible as possible. And because those district courts and those circuit court level um, judges are, are so important, um, it's something that it would be, I think, very important for a majority of Americans to be paying a little bit more attention to if you care about reproductive rights, if you care about criminal justice reform, if you care um, really about any issue, you should care about uh, whoever it is that sits on the bench. Um, I, I want to follow up on what Lena said. Um, first of all, the Supreme Court only hears about 80 cases mm -hmm. a year. Sorry. The vast majority of our rights, what the Constitution means, what our legal protection means, are decided by lower court judges. You talked about, um, I think, m thousands, millions of Americans um, concerning themselves with the president's nomination of Neil Gorsuch. Mm -hmm. One of the cases that got a lot of attention there was the so-called frozen trucker, an individual who found himself um, in the middle of the night in winter in Illinois, where it was minus 20 degrees. His truck broke, broke down. He, after three hours of potentially getting frostbite and hypothermia, he did what any reasonable person would do and sought shelter. Um, that came to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. That did not come to the Supreme Court of the United States. Two judges, thankfully for Alphonse Madden, uh, found that uh, he did what re any reasonable person would have done and chose his life um, and um, that the company was wrong when they fired him for doing so. Neil Gorsuch was, was the third judge on the panel and ruled for, um, for the company there. That was a case that if one other lower court judge had gone the other way, uh, Alphonse Madden would not have gotten his livelihood back. And that's just one of many examples where lower court judges make a huge difference to the lives of millions of people. Mm -hmm. And they are going to be on the bench. Who Donald Trump puts on the bench are gonna, is going to be there for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Long past Donald Trump has left the scene. Um, who he is putting on the bench right now will have a tremendous impact on the lives of, of all of us and our children. Right, and that's that is in no way to obviously diminish some of the other policies that could that are being enacted that 
with a change in administration that can be revisited or um, you know revised. I mean, we've seen that with healthcare, uh, especially most recently. But this is kind of a lasting legacy for every president. And, and Lena, when you're looking at who is uh, being nominated by President Trump, just generally, mm-hmm. I mean, the characteristics. Is there a common thread that goes through each of these uh, nominees, not only in terms of just who they are in their background, but also you know judicial philosophy and so forth? Yeah, they all tend to be very ideological um, in terms of they, they have a very conservative ideology. Let me be very specific about that. There tends to be um, all nominees who are very young, as Dan Daniel mentioned. Um, these are judges who, based on the Constitution uh, and they, that they serve during good behavior, that means for the rest of their lives, these are folks who could be there easily for another 40 years on the bench. And that is something that is very um, deliberate by this administration to make sure that these uh, nominees are are quite young um, and, and they are a, a number of them are are very very smart um, that that is certainly true but they tend to be folks who um, subscribe to a very narrow uh, view of the Constitution in our rights. Um, I think, you know, Daniel certainly can speak more about some of their individual records. Um, The American Constitution Society, just so everyone knows, does not oppose or endorse any particular nominee or policy in general, but we're certainly very concerned about the process by which nominees um, are selected. And one thing I will just say, and we might be able to talk about a little bit more later, is that the way in which that this administration has um, chosen to select these very young, some bright, very troubling nominees um, has been to primarily outsource this process to uh, a very uh, a small number of people. Traditionally, home state senators play a significant role in the selection of judges that serve on the benches that are within their states. That is something that seems to be very um, widely disregarded by this administration. Um, for, uh, during the election, President Trump campaigned um, basically to shore up his conservative bona fides with a short list of folks he would put on the Supreme Court if given the opportunity, and obviously he was, and the fact that uh, Chief Judge Merrick Garland's nomination unfortunately expired, and uh, Senator McConnell took full advantage of that, um, obviously by uh, uh, making sure that Neil Gorsuch was uh, confirmed. And that short list includes many of the the nominees that we're seeing right now being elevated or being um, nominated to a lot of these circuit court vacancies. So we're here on the Leslie Marshall Show. We're talking judicial nominations with Daniel Goldberg and Lena Zwornstein. And and Dan, let's go into the the individual judges or the ones who are being nominated. I I don't want to go alarmist and say who are the worst of the worst or anything like that, but just kind of a, a typical... Uh, judicial nominee. Can you give us an example of a couple? Well, let me tell you, there are, I think we all know, thousands of Republican lawyers out there who would be fine, quality judges, who would read the briefs, apply the facts to the law, who would we have no question that they're qualified to be federal judges. In many cases, that is not who the Trump administration is nominating. They are nominating, um, quite frankly, um, right-wing zealots, ideologues, and people who have no right judging other people. Um, One individual, Damian Schiff, is being nominated to the Federal Court of Claims. He's 38 years old. Uh, Damian Schiff Schiff, uh, was a prolific blogger. In one of his blogs, he said that Justice Kennedy is a quote-unquote judicial prostitute. Um, Wow. (laughs) Exactly. The, the, The President of the United States 
nominated somebody who called uh, a sitting United States Supreme Court justice a prostitute. And can I just say this? I think at any other time <laughs> that would get more just exactly you know, craziness. But I mean, unfortunately, we're just in a time where that kind of just rhetoric is seems more commonplace. And I, I hope that people understand the difference, even saying that this, this sounds bad, but a president may be able to say that, but we certainly don't want um, judges to take that kind of approach when they're supposed to be neutral arbiters in, in deciding cases. And he, he also uh, wrote a blog criticizing a, a program in California school district designed to prevent bullying against LGBTQ students. The title of his blog was, quote unquote, teaching gayness in schools. He also thought that he has said that Earth Day, an innocuous holiday that encourages the planting of trees, is a threat to our liberty. And that because of the EPA, we are all living not as citizens, but as slaves. Wow. Um, the, a person in the Senate just confirmed to the Sixth Circuit uh, from Kentucky, uh, the Sixth Circuit, which covers Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, millions of people whose lives are going to be impacted by this individual, um, also a prolific blogger, uh, spread uh, birther conspiracies about President Obama's um, relationship to Kenya over his blog. One blog, he encouraged uh, Nancy Pelosi, the first woman speaker of the House. He said that Mama Pelosi should be gagged. Wow. And he believe, he says that um, um, the right of women to control their own bodies and decide whether to have an abortion was the was similar to Dred Scott in slavery. They're going to start teaching blogging classes in law school <laughs> the rate that this is going. We have a call on line one. Dean from Buffalo, uh, you have a call on the Leslie Marshall? Yep. Um, you know, I got to hand it to you, ladies and gentlemen. It is like listening to a Mensa meeting. I mean, oh, my God, the IQ in that room must be off the charts. Well, you could take me out of the room, Dean, and you'd still have the same level. So I, I think I'm dra dragging down the curve here. So go ahead. Well, uh, the point I made to the call screener was this. Um, this president, and I'm going to state the obvious, is not your typical run-of-the-mill president, which is why these, um, this whole process of selecting um, Supreme Court justices is so much more important now than at any time in our history, because Trump seems to do these end-arounds to get around the Constitution and now, more so than ever, we need the media and we need our congressmen to keep these, um, uh, to keep Trump and our political leaders in check. Yeah, absolutely. And going to uh, Daniel, um, so what are the, are, are there any tools right now that anybody has to check a uh, President Trump nomination with a, uh, a GOP-led Senate? Well, first, I want to respond to, to the caller's uh, comment about the president and his contempt for the Constitution. Uh, he has also repeatedly demonstrated his contempt for the judicial branch as an independent uh, um, 
branch of government charged with enforcing the Constitution. He has attacked the integrity of Judge Coriel during the campaign. He has attacked the integrity of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals when they um, upheld the Constitution against his anti-discriminatory travel ban. And I think this is there's a real question for all Americans whether um, the president is going to be allowed to stack his uh, the third branch of government with people who will be um, yes men to him, who will see their loyalty to the president who nominated them, or will they see their loyalty to the Constitution mm -hmm. and the laws? And, and the, Lena, on the issue of, you know, how is there any way to slow down this process, especially with the change in rules that the Senate has uh, taken on over the last couple of years? Yeah, so the rules certainly have changed, but there are a number of protections that are built in within the Constitution, but also within the Senate norms. So the Constitution does allow the president to nominate and appoint Supreme Court justices and lower court judges. However, the Senate does provide this important role of advice and consent. That's the terms in um, Article 2, Section 2. Um, and with that, that has pretty much meant that home state senators, because they do the confirming of all these judges play a significant role. As I alluded to earlier, those home state senators who um, are serving the, their constituents in particular states typically play a very strong role in the selection of district court and circuit court judges. By this, they have done things such as convene merit-based selection commissions that are composed of lawyers and sometimes non-lawyers who can vet the qualifications in the community sort of response to, to a particular nominee. Those are uh, types of processes, um, and other senators have different processes, but that can help moderate and make sure you are not putting on somebody uh, on the bench who might not have the community support or might not have the temperament, um, someone who is very well respected in um, the government. This administration seems to be... Um, not paying attention to those types of processes, at least so far, and we can point to um, a number of circuit court nominations, certainly the Eighth Circuit uh, Court nomination of Justice David Strauss. He's a, a state Supreme Court justice who had been on uh, Trump's shortlist during the campaign. Uh, there was no meaningful consultation with the two Democratic senators, Franken and Klobuchar, uh, prior to the nomination. And these are two members that should be noted that actually sit on the Judiciary Committee. Um, the same is true in the Sixth Circuit, uh, a Michigan seat with Senator Stabenow and Peters, where they were pretty much alerted um, nearly at the same time the rest of the public was. And that is a courtesy, um, and it's, it goes beyond courtesy, um, where you would want to make sure there are steps in place. And that is seen in such a thing called the blue slip, which is a literal blue slip, that after a nomination, the longstanding tradition of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is the committee that reviews the judicial nominees and their records, is to say to the home state senators, you have an option in this case to say that you approve or disapprove of a nominee that would be confirmed to a seat on uh, one of your uh, uh, courts in your state. And senators uh, have taken a, um, a, a long look at a lot of records and over the course of, you know, the Obama administration have done a lot to leverage those blue slips to allow further consideration. The ABA also does a review that this White House has decided to decouple from its own review, which takes an additional four to five weeks in order for them to uh, review a, a nominee's record. So there are a number of norms and practices in place that certainly are opportunities for senators to have checks. But there's a lot that happens pre-nomination that this administration seems to be um, ignoring. And Dan, I'll give you the last word. Where are we looking at? Uh, what I mean, kind of, what are we looking at for our country if this kind of um, 
you know, these nominations keep churning out the way that it's been um, happening over the course of the first, I guess, only seven months so far? Well, look, um, during the Obama presidency, Republicans did not return the so-called blue slip, did not approve nominees, uh, 17 nominations. Many of those vacancies are now being filled by Donald Trump. In 2015, Chuck Grassley, Senate, uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, made clear that he is committed to keeping in place the 100-year-old tradition of the Senate that both home state senators have to agree before a nomination will be processed. I assume that Chuck Grassley is a man of principle, and in 2015, when he made that statement, it wasn't only because Barack Obama was president, but that he truly believes it. Uh, Democrats, Democrats have an um, ability in states where they are, um, have, this, have senators uh, to make sure that only consensus mainstream nominees committed to constitutional values and legal protections are, put, are um, gone through the process. And Democrats have to use that that power. This has been uh, a real interesting conversation, and I think for those who want to uh, learn more about this, Lena, where can they find you? Certainly, um, on Twitter, you can find me at Lena Zwarnstein, which is Z W A R E N S T E Y N, or you can contact the American Constitution Society. And Dan, I encourage folks to go to the Alliance for Justice website. We do reports on all the president's circuit court nominations and. There's some troubling ones out there, folks. Great. Thanks to you both. We appreciate it. Uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. This is the Lucky Marvel Show. I'm Ed Chung. Uh, we're still here. We're still, uh, we're not at war, as far as, as, far as I know. Um, and we just had a really interesting conversation on uh, judicial nominations. As somebody who is a lawyer, and I don't admit that um, readily, but as somebody who's a lawyer and practices in federal court, the importance of judges um, at all levels, but uh, especially at the federal court level, um, both in the district courts, in the circuit courts, and the Supreme Courts, is vitally important. And the law that is set at the lower courts that's not overturned by appellate courts, that stays, and, and judges rely on that going forward. So uh, I hope you really pay attention to uh, the issues uh, such as um, judicial nominations that may not be getting the headlines, but that could still do a lot of damage to our country if uh, the administration pushes policies um, in the way that they have been doing so far. Um, I'm gonna be here with you tomorrow as well, sitting in for Leslie, and, and I, it'd be great if you could join because you're gonna be meet a mother and daughter who talk about criminal justice reform in a really interesting way because they it, it has affected their lives personally but not only has it affected their lives they took that those experiences and turned it into helping uh people who have been touched by the justice system uh, and help, to, help them turn their lives around. We're going to be joined by Teresa and Lauren Hodge in studio for the entire hour, and you're going to hear their story, um, their personal story, and you won't be disappointed at all. So please join us tomorrow. Um, but as always, as I'm sitting in here, I just want to leave you with just kind of the, the word for the day, if you will. And I think for this time, it's the words for the day um, from 
you know, our dear leader, uh, fire and fury. We hope that those don't happen anytime in our future. Uh, we hope that we have, um, we are here tomorrow 